Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at E.T. the Extraterrestrial, an adventure game developed and published by Atari and released in 1982 for the Atari 2600 home video game console. We're going to look at that title in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 62. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an account on X with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. We have a lot of great discussions. And we also have a weekly gaming challenge. This weekend's challenges were all about exploring alien worlds. And at the end of the weekend, the leaderboard remains pretty much the same. ISO is in first place with 262 points, followed by Bookie Gnu in second with 130 points. I remain in third place with 99 points. Rich Senewald is in fourth with 76 points. Left-handed guitarist has 35 points. That is good for fifth place. I Am The Dizzle has 24 points in sixth place. And Public Self is in seventh place with 10 points. The only way to join in on the fun is to actually join us over on Discord. You do not have to win the challenge in order to win prizes. So if that sounds like something that would be a good time, check us out over on Discord. I should also mention that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today goodness, including a Patreon exclusive bi-weekly podcast, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. They are ISO, Rich Senewald, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show. Whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis, I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made, and then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we look at every game and we rank them or assign star ratings or anything like that, but we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics, how does the game look, the sound and music, how does the game sound, the narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out of your way to play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them, especially if you've enjoyed the game in the past or you have nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre in which it lives. By all means, go for it. These are really good experiences. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really worthwhile and I still highly recommend you play them today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. They've either aged a bit, they might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You could still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives, but for the most part, I cannot recommend these games to the broader gaming population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is E.T.
E.T. is an adventure game developed and published by Atari and released back in 1982 for the Atari 2600 home video game console. Before we can talk about E.T. the video game, we have to talk about E.T. the movie, which was released in the summer of 1982 and would represent the latest in an ever-increasing line of blockbuster movie releases by rock star film director Steven Spielberg. We've talked about Steven Spielberg previously, but just to refresh everyone's memory, Steven Spielberg today is known as one of the most bankable and well-respected movie directors in all of Hollywood, with nine Academy Award nominations and an American Film Institute Lifetime Achievement Award, just to name a couple of the many accolades that he's received over his career. Back in the early 80s, though, he was still an up-and-coming director. So by the time our story starts, he had already established himself as someone to pay attention to, as he would release a number of increasingly successful films throughout the 1970s, with perhaps the most important release of the decade being 1975's Jaws, about a great white shark terrorizing a beachfront community. That film was a critical moment in movie history, as it would be the first film to be recognized as a quote-unquote summer blockbuster, and would, shortly after its release, achieve the distinction of being the highest-grossing film ever released, at least for the time. Jaws was the movie that put Spielberg on the map, and he would follow that up with more critically acclaimed box office releases, including Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977, and one of my personal favorites, Indiana Jones' First Adventure, Raiders of the Lost Ark, in 1981. To say Spielberg's star was on the rise would be an understatement, and you might expect that with such success, Spielberg would remain constantly busy with no time to think about or consider anything other than what his next film was going to be. This, however, wasn't necessarily the case. Sure, he received a ton of media and fan attention, but some of his films, particularly Raiders of the Lost Ark, required Spielberg to be away from friends and family for extended periods of time, and it was during some of these film shoots that he began to feel increasingly lonely. Now, this wasn't the first time Spielberg would experience a feeling of loneliness, as back in 1960, shortly after his parents' divorce, he had gone through a period of time where he felt like his life had a void, an ever-increasing hole that he didn't know how to fill. So, he turned to his imagination, and ended up inventing an imaginary alien friend who would, in his own words, be the brother he never had and a father that he didn't feel he had anymore. As Spielberg experienced those similar feelings of loneliness while filming Raiders of the Lost Ark, his mind wandered to his youth, and he recalled the imaginary alien companion he had once created. This, he thought, would be a great idea for a future film, and in fact, he had some prior experience with the concept of aliens and UFOs in film. Recall that he had previously released Close Encounters of the Third Kind a couple years earlier. So, he worked with relatively new screenwriter Melissa Matheson, to come up with a script for a family-friendly alien adventure, which she promptly drafted in just eight weeks. Entitled E.T. and Me, Spielberg read the draft and was immediately impressed. He knew this would make for an amazing film, and while the script would be revised a couple of times between this initial draft and when he would start trying to get the film made, he was confident that Matheson had delivered a hit. But, when he went to sell the script to Columbia Pictures, who Spielberg had worked with previously on fellow alien-centric story Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he hit a snag. Executives at Columbia Pictures didn't think Spielberg's new film would be well-liked or profitable. They were looking for a scary sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, not a family-friendly adventure starring a cuddly alien whose only goal was to return home to his family. So, Spielberg shopped the script around, eventually convincing MCA, which was the parent company of Universal Studios, to purchase the script from Columbia for $1 million. Under that deal, Columbia would retain the rights to 5% of the film's net profits, but at least Spielberg was allowed to develop his movie freely, albeit not under the Columbia umbrella. For Columbia, this seemed like a no-lose situation. They wouldn't have to pay any money to get the film made, and they would still be able to enjoy a portion of whatever success the film was able to achieve. They didn't think it would be much, but hey, something is better than nothing. Now, it turns out that Columbia 
dramatically underestimated the movie's appeal, as E.T. would release to stellar reviews and a huge audience turnout, remaining at the top of the box office list for a record 16 weeks, en route to becoming the highest-grossing film of all time as of 1982, surpassing the current record holder, Star Wars, who had itself unseated Spielberg's prior blockbuster, Jaws. E.T. would go on to become one of the most widely seen movies of all time, with the fourth highest number of tickets sold ever for a film. And I'm not just talking about for 1982. It is number four on that list even today. 142 million tickets were sold to see E.T., which is absolutely insane. To put it into perspective... Anyone who follows box office sales will tell you that the amount of money made by movies today borders on the obscene, with a ton of movies now grossing over $1 billion during their theatrical release, with one of the biggest franchises being the films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Of those films, Avengers Endgame was the biggest, and for a period of time, it was the highest grossing film of all time. Though, after a re-release, James Cameron's Avatar now holds that title again. Avengers Endgame? grossed $2.8 billion in 2019 when it was released, which was based on a little over 95 million ticket sales. 95 million tickets were sold for $2.8 billion gross for Avengers Endgame. E.T. sold 47 million more tickets than Avengers Endgame. That is absolutely insane. By the way, remember that Columbia deal I mentioned earlier where they make 5% of the net profits from the film? Well, considering E.T.'s success, they actually made more in 1982 from that 5% stake in E.T. than they would make for any other film they directly released that year. And to think, they sold the script for a scant $1 million. So, to say E.T. was a cultural phenomenon would be an understatement. It would spawn countless merchandising deals and spin-off entertainment opportunities and a series of toys based on E.T. were expected to be major sellers during the 1982 holiday season. There was significant effort in attempting to satiate the demand of the public for more E.T., and with those efforts came an interesting opportunity. What if, rather than deal in the purely physical realm of action figures and dolls, a company could create a digital version of E.T.? an interactive experience that would make players feel as though they were transported into the movie to live their own E.T.-related adventure. Given E.T.'s success, that concept sounded like an opportunity to effectively print money, and it was with those visions of fortune in mind that Atari began negotiations with Steven Spielberg and Universal Pictures to acquire a license to the E.T. property, to be used in a game that would be developed for the Atari 2600. At this point, we need to take a step back and talk about the video game industry in 1982. Long-time listeners know that we have discussed this time frame previously, but for those who might need a refresher, Atari was pretty much the home console manufacturer of the time, owning a vast majority of the overall market, and in turn, driving a significant number of video game sales in the later 70s into the early 80s. In many ways, Atari could do no wrong, as their console was insanely popular, serving as the home to a number of home ports of various popular arcade titles, allowing for families at home to play games that previously were only available in arcades around the world. In the beginning of Atari's home console business, there was a strong degree of control around game releases, with every Atari 2600 game being developed in some capacity by Atari itself, which meant that they controlled the quality of each game that would grace their console. That would all change with the creation of the company Activision in 1979, which would become the first independent third-party developer in video game history, meaning now anyone could create games for the Atari console, as long as they had a licensing agreement with the company. This would allow for a huge increase in game releases, while at the same time creating a situation where Atari would no longer control the quality of releases for their console. Sure, anything developed by Atari would remain under their control, but with third-party publishing now a thing, there would be a number of games that would enter the market completely independent of Atari's oversight. For its part, Atari saw this as a win-win situation. 
The more games that would release for their console, the more hardware they'd be able to sell, not to mention any profits that they received through the initial licensing agreements that had been signed with the third-party publishing companies. There was effectively no downside for Atari. All they saw were higher dollar signs, and they liked what they saw. Which is to say, by the time 1982 rolled around, Atari was flush with cash, and it was this fact that allowed them to spend $21 million dollars in 1982 money, to purchase the rights to develop an E.T. game for their Atari 2600 console. The thought was, $21 million, while a ridiculous number for a video game license in the early 80s, was still a sound investment, as E.T. was so popular. The company expected to make many times their investment back in terms of sales and profits. So, Atari acquired the rights to E.T., but there was only one slight issue. Like we talked about, there was a lot of focus on the upcoming holiday season, especially as it related to E.T. toys and merchandising. If a company wanted to really take advantage of E.T.'s popularity, they would need to prioritize any related product releases in time for parents to buy those products for their kids later in the year. This put Atari in a bit of a bind. While they had the E.T. license, they needed to somehow create a game based on that license in an incredibly short time frame. Here was the issue. E.T. released in theaters in June of 1982, and shortly thereafter, negotiations began on acquiring the video game rights to the film. In order to meet the holiday rush, any game would need to be completed by the beginning of September, which would allow sufficient time for cartridges to be manufactured, boxes to be printed, and the game to be shipped to stores. That's all well and good, except negotiations for the license didn't complete in June. They didn't actually finalize the deal until very late in July. So, for the game to make it to store shelves in time for the holidays, it would need to be completed in around five weeks. Even looking at games from 1982, a five-week development timeline was entirely crazy to consider, especially for a game tied to such an important licensed property. The executive leadership across Atari reached out to a number of developers across the organization, all of whom said it just couldn't be done. That is, until the CEO of Atari, Ray Kasser, got in touch with Rockstar Atari developer and game designer Howard Scott Warshaw. Warshaw had joined Atari in 1981, after a brief stint at Hewlett Packard as a systems engineer. Despite having gotten a master's degree in computer engineering from Tulane University, working as a systems engineer at HP didn't really excite Warshaw, so he left the company and joined the video game industry, which is what prompted his recruitment into Atari. Once there, his first assignment was to port a popular arcade title, Star Castle, to the Atari 2600 home castle. Star Castle was one of a line of different vector graphics arcade titles developed by a company called Cinematronics in 1980, and it was unique, in fact, because of its vector graphics implementation. For those who may be unaware, most arcade games of the time, and even most video games in general, utilized a concept called raster graphics to display imagery to players, which effectively means that games would display images as a collection of pixels arranged in a grid on the screen, with the X and Y axes representing the game's overall resolution. Vector graphics, by contrast, operate using the principles of points, shapes, lines, and curves, defined mathematically as opposed to as a hard-coded collection of pixels. Early examples of vector graphics, especially in arcades, tended to display wireframe kinds of visuals, though later uses of vector graphics would become much more advanced. Anyway, Star Castle was a game that utilized vector graphics, and Warshaw's assignment was to convert that game onto the Atari 2600. There was only one problem. The Atari 2600 just was not powerful enough to do a full-scale vector-based game like Star Castle Justice, and Warshaw recognized that because of the system's limitations, he would never be able to create a good port of the game. So, he decided to change the design, and in the process, ended up creating a brand new game completely independent of Star Castle. That game, entitled Yar's Revenge, would go on to be a bestseller for Atari, and in fact, is considered by many to be one of the best games ever released for the Atari 2600. With the success of Yar's Revenge, Warshaw had quickly proven himself to be a quality game designer and developer, and despite the fact that Yar's Revenge was his first game, he showed a level of game design maturity that others in the company had a hard time matching. Because of that success, 
Warshaw would be given the opportunity to choose his next project, and he decided to try his hand at bringing Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones' first adventure, to the Atari 2600 as a licensed title. That game, being tied to a very popular and lucrative film license, was a much bigger challenge for Warshaw to complete, as he was under intense pressure to make sure he developed something that would live up to the Indiana Jones name. At the same time, though, Warshaw was intrigued by the promise of the Indiana Jones license. Working on the conversion of an arcade game, while not an unimportant task, didn't feel as compelling to him as adapting a popular property into a video game, as he felt the act of creating that adaptation had better opportunities for creativity while bringing with it unique challenges which he enjoyed trying to solve. After a meeting with Steven Spielberg himself, where Warshaw and Spielberg discussed the proposed game design, Warshaw would sit down to develop the title, and in the process would create yet another critical and commercial blockbuster for Atari, with many praising the game's gameplay and overall mechanics as being beyond what many were used to seeing in traditional Atari games. Warshaw was two for two, having completed his first two games, both of which released to commercial and critical success, and he knew that he had the skills to continue to be a high-quality game designer for as long as he'd remain in the industry. So, when the opportunity arose to work on bringing the E.T. game to life on the Atari 2600, he leapt at it, despite the severely compressed five-week time frame that he had available to complete work on the title. Now, some of you might be saying, why the heck would Warshaw agree to try to develop E.T. under such a time crunch? And the answer to that is, there were actually several reasons. For one, Warshaw looked at the title as a personal challenge. Recall, he had proven to himself that he was a top-tier game designer, and despite the fact that each of his first two games were created over a period of months as opposed to weeks, he truly believed that he would be able to successfully complete E.T. in the time that had been allotted to him. Whether that was overconfidence or uninformed planning, I can't say, but Warshaw had no doubt in his mind that he would be able to complete the game in time for the holiday season. Another reason Warshaw decided to work on the game is because the CEO of Atari, Ray Kassar, had personally asked him to work on E.T., and the reason Kassar singled Warshaw out was because Steven Spielberg had explicitly requested that Warshaw work on his E.T. conversion. Spielberg himself was an avid gamer since the 70s, and he thought Warshaw's work on Raiders of the Lost Ark was nothing short of phenomenal, so he didn't want to trust the current top film in the world to just anyone. Spielberg believed that Warshaw could do it justice, and that confidence in him was a prime reason why he took on the assignment. And finally, Warshaw chose to accept the project because he was offered a pretty awesome compensation package by Atari. If Warshaw would be able to complete the title on time, then he would receive a $200,000 check and an all-expenses-paid trip to Hawaii, which I gotta say is not too shabby for five weeks' worth of work, especially in 1982 dollars. As I think many would do in this situation, Warshaw accepted the project and began working on his version of E.T. After getting his rough design nailed down, a meeting was scheduled between him and Spielberg to gather initial feedback. At that meeting, Warshaw described his idea for the game, which would involve a six-screen game world, complex mechanics involving the discovery and usage of radio parts to phone home, and a number of enemies that would need to be avoided in order to have any chance at winning the game. On paper, that actually sounds pretty good to me, but Spielberg wasn't all that impressed, and in fact, he had a much less grand vision for the game. Spielberg thought that instead of creating an innovative, deep title— perhaps Warshaw would be able to create a stylized Pac-Man clone set in the E.T. universe, where the player would control E.T. and navigate him through a maze, collecting Reese's Pieces candy as he went, which, for those who may not know, was a major product placement and advertising campaign associated with the E.T. film. While Warshaw thought the idea had merit, he was not willing to compromise on his design vision, and basically told Spielberg that the game would be better if he was allowed to do his job and design the game the way he wanted to make it. Spielberg ultimately relented, and Warshaw got to work on creating his version of E.T. for the Atari 2600. Over the next five weeks, Warshaw entered into what might be described as one of the worst periods of game development crunch in history, where he literally spent every waking moment working on the game. The crunch was so severe 
that Atari replicated his workplace setup in his home, allowing Warshaw to work wherever he may have been at the moment. If he was in the office, he was working on the game. As soon as he got home, he'd sit down to work on the game. The moment he opened his eyes, he worked on the game. It got so stressful and so over-the-top crazy that Atari ended up assigning someone whose job was to make sure Warshaw was eating and sleeping regularly. Seriously, how crazy is that? Warshaw was working so hard on the title that there was real fear he would neglect the foundational aspects of life that actually keep you alive. Despite the stress and constant work, Warshaw would ultimately succeed in creating a full E.T. game on time, completing the title right around the beginning of September as planned, and with just enough time for Atari to get the game mass-produced for shipping to stores for the holiday rush. And by just enough time, I truly mean there was little time for anything else, and in a move that diverged from Atari's typical game development process, they decided to forego any sort of user testing for the title. From Atari's perspective, this was an acceptable risk. Here, they had the newest game, created by one of their top game designers, tied to the hottest film property around. There was literally no way this could possibly fail. With that confidence firmly in place, E.T. would release for the Atari 2600 in December of 1982. And to say that it was a highly anticipated title would be an understatement, as numerous parents had E.T. on their holiday shopping lists, and news outlets everywhere were covering its release. Many believed that E.T. would be the harbinger of things to come, and would usher in an era of high-demand licensed video games titles based on hot properties that a lot of people expected would be a huge hit amongst the gaming community. And you know what? At least part of that statement was true but we'll circle back to that one in a little bit. As it relates specifically to E.T., it would sell extremely well over the 1982 holiday period, with 2.6 million copies sold in December alone. And critical response to the game was surprisingly decent, with some praising the game's difficulty, game mechanics, and tension-filled gameplay. It appeared like Atari was going to have a hit on their hands, and it's a good thing too, because in anticipation of the holiday rush, Atari ordered a significantly higher number of cartridges to be produced than they expected to sell right away. The thought was, this was a game that was going to have staying power, and Atari firmly believed that it would win the 1982 holiday season and would continue to sell numerous copies of the game into 1983 and beyond. At this point, though, a funny thing happened. Kids who received E.T. as a holiday present sat down to begin playing the game, as you usually do when you receive a fresh new title. They expected to relive the magic of the movie that so many had loved. What they got, though, was not the experience they anticipated, and the children of the world started a large-scale rebellion against Atari. Okay, maybe that's just a little bit of hyperbole, but the fact is... Many kids simply didn't like the game, and complained that the controls were unintelligible, the graphics were subpar, and the game mechanics were frustrating. They thought they were getting a prized present, but what many received instead was a lump of coal. That discontent led many children to actually ask their parents to return the game to stores, which I've got to say from personal experience is a little crazy to me. I have been gaming a long time and I've received my fair share of titles that didn't live up to my expectations. But I think I've only returned a video game once in my entire life, and that was, well, I actually don't remember, which is killing me right now. I have literally been sitting here for 10 minutes racking my brain trying to remember what that stupid game was that I ended up returning to Electronics Boutique back in the 90s. This is going to irk me so badly. Anyway, my point there is, a game would have to be really bad to get me to return it. And for kids of the time, that was pretty much a similar sentiment. You just didn't return video games around this time. Those experiences were too precious to simply send back just because you didn't like them. And most of the time, kids would persevere with a subpar game simply because they didn't have much choice. E.T. for many was so disliked that it caused kids all around the world to simply say, no way, enough is enough. Atari really didn't expect that to happen, and as returns started piling up at stores, they noticed that the game had stopped selling in general, which meant that they were sitting on unused inventory. 
Retail stores don't generally like to have products sitting on their shelves without any chance of being sold because that's prime real estate being wasted. So they ended up returning all of that unused inventory to Atari, which ultimately led to disaster for the company. To put it into perspective, Atari produced approximately 4 million cartridges for E.T.'s initial production run and sent those copies out to stores, with 2.6 million copies sold in December of 1982 alone. By the end of 1983, stores had returned nearly all of their unsold inventory, as well as all of the customer returns that they had been accumulating, which at the end of the day amounted to 3.5 million copies of the game being returned to Atari. E.T. would end up selling just 500,000 copies when all was said and done, which vastly underperformed expectations. Like I mentioned a minute ago, This was disastrous for Atari, as there was no chance for them to recoup their $21 million initial investment. This failure, coupled with the general downturn in video game sales and reduced consumer confidence in the video game industry, would eventually cause Atari to effectively be decimated, and in turn would contribute to the entire video game market crashing in 1983. Now, it's fairly popular amongst internet and YouTube personalities to claim that E.T. was the reason for the video game crash of 1983. But the fact is, that simply isn't true. We've talked about it before, but the video game industry was already reaching a tipping point by the time E.T. came out, primarily because of the severe amount of shovelware titles that had been released on home consoles following Atari and Activision striking up the first third-party publishing deal, and in the process, changing the face of the gaming industry forever. E.T. was certainly a contributing factor to the crash, But to pin an entire industry's economic collapse on a single poorly received game is just not accurate. Also not accurate were the news reports that millions of copies of E.T. were buried in a landfill in Alamogordo, New Mexico in late 1983. For years, people believed that Atari was trying to bury their mistake, literally, by getting rid of all of the unsold and returned E.T. cartridges and game boxes. This would be proven false in 2013, though for what it's worth, there was a hint of truth to the urban legend, as numerous copies of E.T. would be found in the Alamogordo landfill, including copies of various other unsold titles that Atari had no need to keep in inventory. Overall, only around 1,300 game cartridges were unearthed in that landfill. While it might not have been the millions expected, it did at least lend some credence and closure to the urban myth. Interestingly, the level of fascination around E.T.'s failure was so culturally significant that a number of museums, most prominently the Smithsonian Institution, were given artifacts recovered from the landfill dig to include as display pieces for museum patrons to look at. That seems to me to be a fitting end to the legend surrounding E.T., one of the gaming industry's greatest failures forever immortalized as part of our collective cultural history. Howard Scott Warshaw would eventually leave the video game industry to focus on other endeavors, and would over the years become a published author, documentary filmmaker, and most recently a practicing psychotherapist. Despite all of his other successes, his association with E.T.'s creation has made him a legendary, infamous figure in the video game industry, and while for a long time his name carried a negative connotation, recent years and retrospective analysis have shown a different light on Warshaw. Instead of being responsible for nearly killing the video game industry, many today recognize that he almost achieved an impossible task in bringing E.T. from concept to completion in five weeks' time. A better understanding of his efforts have earned him newfound respect, and today there is no longer a dark alien-shaped cloud hanging over his head. Atari's future would be decidedly less rosy, as they would never again achieve the levels of success that they enjoyed prior to E.T.'s release. Atari does still exist today, which honestly deserves an attaboy from all of us, though it is most certainly not the same company that it was back in the late 70s and early 80s. E.T. itself, though, is perhaps one of the most important releases in all of gaming history. As an objectively colossal failure, E.T.'s release served as an important lesson for future game developers, and is a cautionary tale that teaches all of us not to rest on our laurels or assume past achievements will automatically ensure future success. While it is popular to ridicule E.T. simply because of it existing in the first place, I would offer a different take. Instead of simply cursing its existence, I believe it should be recognized as a pivotal point in video game history. I'm not saying it should be celebrated as a game, 
but its existence did truly impact the world of gaming forever, and even extended into non-video game popular culture. I'm sure there are individuals out there who believe E.T. should be stricken from the record books, but for me, E.T. is a title that, while most likely not on anyone's best games of all time lists, is certainly an experience that deserves its spot in video game history, and as such, should absolutely continue to be remembered. We are now going to shift gears to talk about what it feels like to play E.T. today versus when it was released over 40 years ago. So, for those of you who may not have played the game before, E.T. can best be described as an overworld adventure game kind of title, where you have to navigate around a series of screens, avoid enemies and obstacles, and explore hidden, or maybe not so hidden, depths. Your goal in the game is to collect a series of three radio transmitter parts that, if combined, will allow you to contact your alien ship and request that they pick you up. Assuming you make your way to the landing zone in time, your alien ship will come and pick you up and you will have effectively beaten the game. So, obviously, E.T. is a pretty simple concept at the highest level. But there's actually a surprising number of mechanics in the game, and I want to discuss each one in detail, primarily because E.T. has become famous, or perhaps infamous, for being one of the worst games of all time. There are countless YouTube videos, magazine articles, and blog entries about how E.T. is some indecipherable mess that is completely impossible to play, and I feel like sometimes people just like to jump on a popular bandwagon and ride it all the way home without taking the time to try to experience something for him or herself. I'll let you all in on my own personal opinion on the game later on, but before we get there, let's talk about how to actually play the game. The first thing I want to impress on everyone is the fact that if you don't have a manual for E.T., go out and get one, or at a minimum, look up a scanned version online, because there is little chance you'll be able to play the game without it. My suspicion is that many modern gamers may have attempted to pick the game up without reading the manual, because today, manuals aren't even really a thing. I actually don't remember the last modern game I purchased that actually came with an instruction book. Nowadays, all of those instructions are baked into the early moments of the game, so there's no need to ship any sort of supplemental materials. I really do miss hard copy manuals, but unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever see a return to mass-produced instruction books. Anyway, if you don't have a manual for E.T., you're going to be completely out of luck, and you'll likely think the game is completely unplayable. So, go get one. Okay, now that that's out of the way, let's talk about the game. You control E.T., and you move him around the screen using your joystick. At various locations on each screen, one of several things can happen. You may be walking around and come upon a symbol on the top of the screen, like an arrow or some odd icon. That represents the action that you can take in that particular quadrant of the screen, and each screen contains a grid of these quadrants that may, or may not, have anything to do on them. Assuming you're in a quadrant with some action to perform, you'll see an icon at the top of the screen, like I mentioned, and you can use your joystick's button to perform that action. Some of those actions, like those corresponding to the up, down, left, and right arrows that will sometimes appear, are pretty simple. If you click your action button while one of the arrows is on the screen, you'll teleport E.T. to the next screen that exists in that particular direction. Other actions are not quite so straightforward. As an example, you might encounter a section of the screen that displays a question mark. If you hit your action button here, you'll be shown the location of one of the missing radio transmitter pieces that you need to complete the game, assuming one exists on that particular screen. If it does, you'll see a blinking yellow pixel in the location that you need to search. If not, nothing happens at all. You may also find an action icon that looks like a government building. If you click your button here, it'll banish any of the bad guys from the screen you're currently on, forcing them to return to their office, so to speak. There are two different enemies you'll encounter, and this particular action works on both of them. 
you may encounter a scientist who, if he catches you, will pick you up and transport you to his lab, making you have to retrace your steps to get back to where you were. An annoyance and an inconvenience, but not a huge deal at the end of the day. Much more irritating is the FBI agent, who, if he catches you, will take a single piece of your radio transmitter, assuming you found one, and hide it in a random screen in the game. If you don't have a radio transmitter part, he'll steal all of your Reese's Pieces candy, which is the primary way you can recover health in the game, and also a major driver for points if you do, in fact, beat the game. These Reese's Pieces candies are strewn throughout the game world, represented as a single green pixel on the screen. If you collect some Reese's Pieces and find an action icon that looks like a circle with a dot in the center, that's your cue to munch as many Reese's Pieces as you can, as that will replenish your energy, which constantly depletes whenever you take any action, like simply walking around the world. If you lose all of your energy, you lose a life. But luckily, you do have three lives at your disposal and an extra life if you find a special hidden flower and revive it using your special ET powers. If you lose all of your lives, though, it's game over. The Reese's Pieces also serve to increase your score at the end of the game, like I mentioned before, and can be banked, so to speak, by finding an action icon that looks like a lowercase e. This calls Elliot, your young friend, who will take any candy you've found and convert it into points after you complete a round of the game. If you have nine pieces exactly, that triggers a special action for Elliot, as he'll not only take your candy to bank it, but he'll also chase away any bad guys in the area, and will retrieve one missing radio piece for you, assuming you haven't found them all yet. If you do end up finding all three radio pieces, then the next part of your mission is to find the single quadrant in the entire game that allows you to use your radio to contact your alien friends. This particular action icon looks kind of like a Space Invader enemy, and there's literally only one quadrant in each playthrough of the game that lets you use your radio. Now granted, there are only six screens in the entire game, so it's not like there's a ton to explore here, but it can be tricky to find the single section of the single screen that will allow you to phone home, especially because you'll be dodging enemies who want nothing more than to ruin your day especially the FBI agent, who, like I mentioned, will steal a piece of your radio transmitter if he catches you. If that happens, you have to once again search to try to find the missing piece before you can progress with calling your alien companions. Finding those radio pieces, by the way, involves perhaps the most derided mechanic in the entire game, and that is the exploration of pits, or wells as the game calls them. Each screen in the game is filled with a variety of pits that, if you descend into one, may lead you to a radio piece, or the revive flower we talked about a couple minutes ago, or perhaps simply nothing. You are safe from any human attack while you're in a pit, which the game's manual helpfully tells you to use like a pause screen, because the actual game doesn't have any ability to pause otherwise. To get out of a pit, you simply use your action button, which will cause E.T.'s neck to stretch out, after which you can levitate yourself up and out of the hole. Only sometimes to fall right back in again, likely multiple times before you get far enough away from the pit to remain on the surface of the normal game world. This would be a frustration at best, but what really makes it an issue is the fact that every time you fall into a pit you lose a good chunk of energy, which makes it that much more difficult to survive to escape to your alien homeworld. The manual even recognizes this issue, saying, and I quote, Sometimes E.T. will fall back into a well after he has levitated up to the planet's surface. It then proceeds to say that to avoid that from happening, you need to press left or right on your joystick as soon as the scene transitions, which should move E.T. to safety. It's great that the manual gives that tip and all, but honestly, it feels like that was a design decision, or perhaps a design bug, that should have never existed in the first place. We'll talk more about how I feel about the wells in a little bit, so stay tuned for more on that one. Anyway, assuming you find all three radio pieces, and you find the alien call quadrant, you can then call your alien ship to pick you up and bring you home. This starts a countdown timer where you now have to return to your landing zone, which is one of the quadrants on the very first screen that you encounter in the game. Once again, randomized. Assuming you can get back to the landing zone and avoid any enemies that may pop up on the screen during your countdown, your alien spaceship will come over, beam you up to safety, and you will have beaten the game. 
at least until it restarts itself again, allowing you to keep playing as much as you want, with the only appreciable difference between rounds being the randomization of where items are located. Effectively, if you beat the game once, you've beaten the game. It's not like there are multiple levels to progress through. In this way, it's pretty similar to classic arcade titles, where your only goal was to get as high of a score as possible, and if you did manage to beat a game, so to speak, your reward was to simply play it again, accumulating more points in the process. So, that's pretty much E.T. in a nutshell. Something that I'm hoping has been impressed upon you is the fact that the game is actually pretty darn complex for an Atari 2600 title. This is not a simple single-screen kind of experience. There are numerous mechanics at play, multiple enemy types that do different things, and a variety of powers that you can activate depending on which section of a given screen you're on. While we'll talk about how the game actually executed on those mechanics in a few minutes, the fact is, E.T. is a surprisingly ambitious game for the time in which it was released, and I feel like that sometimes gets missed when many people look at E.T. and simply assume it is the worst and most poorly designed game of all time. Before we talk about the more specific aspects of the game, though, I do want to take a look at the back of the box, because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love learning how different companies marketed their titles, and especially when we used to make buying decisions about purchasing games. A lot of times, we didn't necessarily know a ton about these games. We may have had magazine articles and reviews, but beyond that, a lot of the buying decision was based on if the box looked cool and what the back of the box said, especially with something like E.T. Now, this one, people probably knew about, or at least they knew of E.T., so when they went out to buy the game, at least initially, they kind of knew, hey, I'm getting E.T., but... If they actually looked at the box, I wonder what they would have really thought. So let's take a look at the back of the box. So for E.T., for the Atari 2600, the back of the box says, The object of the game is to find pieces of E.T.'s phone. Once all pieces are found, E.T. calls home and the spaceship arrives to pick him up. E.T. can collect Reese's pieces scattered around in order to regain energy, which is constantly depleted with time. For use with North American and other NTSC television sets only. And then it says, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, one video game, one player, 2600 video computer system. And that is the back of the box. And they also have a screenshot here showing what appears to be E.T. coming out of a spaceship. And let me tell you, this box would not have sold me on the game. Even in 1982, I don't think I would have actually picked this one up. It looked way too simple, and the description was just a description of the game. There was really no marketing here. It was kind of like, here's just the instructions, or here's what the game is all about. And I don't know, it just kind of didn't do it for me, really. I mean, there were other Atari 2600 games that had much more detail. And now, granted, like we said, if you got E.T. or if you were going to buy E.T., you probably knew what you were going to be getting, at least in terms of the fact that it was a licensed title and you knew what E.T. was all about. At least you knew what the movie was all about. But this box did not sell me at all. I would not have picked this game up if I saw it in the stores and judging by at least the reactions of many people out there, I would have dodged a bullet. But we don't just trust what other people say. We have to look at the games ourselves. So let's talk about the more specific aspects of E.T. And we're going to start by talking about the graphics. I certainly hope you like the color green and all of the shades and variations that dark and darker green provide because you're going to be seeing a lot of green as you play E.T. For the most part, every single screen and location in the game world is green, with the exception of the area with the FBI and Science Lab, which is colored blue, which is a nice change of pace. Otherwise, the graphics are green, all green, all the time. Okay, look, I know I'm being just a little bit over the top, but honestly... 
the game is green. We do have to recognize the limitations of the Atari 2600's hardware, which is certainly not a graphics powerhouse. But at the same time, it was in fact capable of displaying colors other than green, and I feel like E.T. would have benefited from having a bit more diversity in its environment. Character models, by contrast, do have a bit more detail, though they're pretty much what you would expect from an Atari 2600 game. Meaning, they're blocky, and you really have to use your imagination to see the character that the game's designers want you to see. I am not knocking this aspect of the game, mind you, as the Atari 2600 simply doesn't have the power to render things in much more detail. But while that may be true, if we look at it through a modern lens, we can see very quickly that the visuals just do not hold up today. Moving on to the sound and music, there's really only one musical interlude in the entire game, and that is an excerpt from the E.T. theme as composed by John Williams and reimagined as a single string of synthesized notes. Surprisingly, that theme is crystal clear and sounds strangely compelling for an Atari 2600-era song. I'm not sure if that's because it's a John Williams theme or something else entirely, but I thought the musical interlude was well done. That being said, that interlude is literally the only piece of music in the game, and I'm not sure it's good enough to completely make up for the lack of other music throughout the game's various segments. Sound effects are pretty blah as well, with only the simplest of effects used for when E.T. walks around an environment or tries to run from a bad guy. I'm glad they were here because otherwise the auditory environment would have been completely barren, but there's really nothing memorable here. Overall, there's really nothing of note with the sound and music in the game. I was mostly unimpressed, though it should be mentioned that as an Atari 2600 game, I wouldn't expect anything super detailed. A lack of quality audio kinda comes with the territory when we're talking about this era of gaming. Moving on to the narrative and story, you play as E.T., an alien who has become stranded on Earth and needs to somehow find a way home. The only way to do that is to contact your alien companions, which begins a quest to retrieve three pieces of a radio transmitter that have become hidden in a series of pits strewn about the game world. You need to navigate the world, find those lost radio transmitter pieces, and phone home all while avoiding FBI agents who want to steal your possessions and scientists who want to capture you to further their own extraterrestrial research. Assuming you can contact your alien friends and make it to the landing zone in time, you just might be able to escape Earth and hopefully return home. The story here roughly mimics the main story beats of the E.T. film, and for the most part, it works within the context of the game. Obviously, a little bit of imagination is needed in order to make the story actually match the action shown on the screen, which is very simple and lacking in detail, as you might expect for an Atari 2600 title. But from my perspective, the story worked just fine. No real complaints here. Moving on to the playability and controls, this is one area where I do have a number of thoughts. First, I want to get one thing out of the way. E.T. is a playable, understandable experience that you can in fact beat, assuming you understand the game's mechanics and what it's asking the player to do, which in this instance really does require reviewing the instruction book. Assuming you do that, you'll understand all of the mechanics that I mentioned earlier on, like teleporting to different screens, radioing your alien friends, and every other action you can do in the game world. You might think that the game is an unplayable mess given the way it's often portrayed, but that simply is not the case. The controls all work fine and are responsive to your inputs. From a technical perspective, there's nothing inherently wrong with the controls. Where the game falters, however, is in the execution and design of some, if not many, of the game's mechanics. So let's start by talking about the pits in the game, which is probably the one mechanic that gets the most attention by the majority of the game-playing community. Many people say the pit mechanics are broken. And to that I say, uh, sort of. I mean, the act of falling in pits works just fine, and getting out is simple enough. The issue is, there are a ton of times where you fall in a pit and it feels completely random. 
The biggest time when this happens is actually ascending out of a pit, where you're placed on the overworld screen and almost immediately fall back into the pit, sapping some of your energy in the process. There are other times, though, where depending on which screen you transition to, you might fall into a pit before the next screen even loads. Now, I recognize that if you spend enough time playing the game, you will eventually memorize the game world layout and can, in many cases, avoid pits when transitioning from screen to screen. But for the more casual player who just wants to play a round or two of the game, there will likely be a good deal of frustration, and it will feel like you are randomly falling into pits. That's not actually what's happening, but regardless, there's definitely a design flaw here. And speaking of design flaws, the fact that the game manual has to tell you that sometimes E.T. will fall back into a pit unless you move out of the way in the right direction at the right time just smacks of something that should have been obviously unfun and should have been addressed as part of the development process. Even with the limited amount of time available to design and create the title, it would have been a relatively simple thing to ensure that when E.T. is transported out of a pit, that he's placed on a solid ground space as opposed to a pit block that needs immediate attention to avoid. I can get my head around many of the design decisions in the game, though I don't agree with many of them, but this one I just cannot comprehend, and it serves to add frustration to the experience more than it adds meaningful gameplay. Don't get me wrong, I'm fine with the concept of the pits, and the fact that you need to explore them in order to find your missing radio pieces is fine. It's just the mechanics around when and how you fall into pits, and in many cases continually fall into the pits, that I dislike. Beyond the pit issues, another core gameplay mechanic that I found more frustrating than fun was the way that bad guys act and appear on screen. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but just to recap, you have two bad guys that you need to avoid. A scientist, who honestly isn't all that bad, as all he does is capture and transport you to his lab, which you can readily escape from, and an FBI agent, who is an extremely annoying enemy that if he touches you, will steal a piece of your radio transmitter and hide it somewhere in one of the pits in the game world, totally at random. To clarify, I don't dislike the mechanics of those two enemies in general, despite the annoyance of the FBI agent. What I dislike is the way the game doesn't give you much in the way of mechanics to deal with them, because these enemies do not follow the rules that you are restricted by, which in this context means they can walk right across pits without any issue. This is perhaps the most annoying aspect of the entire game's design from my perspective, because I believe that if this one piece of design was changed, E.T. wouldn't be considered nearly as negatively as it routinely is, though obviously the pit mechanics would still leave something to be desired. Here's the issue. In many games around this time, enemy interaction was, as you might expect, relatively primitive. Many times, enemies in games followed simple chase-the-player mechanics, resulting in a gameplay loop where players would typically avoid these enemies in the pursuit of some other goal. For E.T., that means avoiding enemies while you search various pits for your missing radio transmitter parts. In other games, like Pac-Man, that might mean navigating a maze to eat a bunch of pellets while you avoid a bunch of ghosts chasing you. I'm guessing many of you have played or at least seen Pac-Man, so you probably understand that game's gameplay loop. And while the game might look simple, there's actually a surprising amount of depth related to how you avoid certain ghosts and how you pick your path through the maze to maximize your chances of success. Now, imagine a world where the ghosts in Pac-Man aren't confined by those maze walls, and they can simply rush you non-stop while you still have to abide by the rules of the game world. That would be a dramatically less deep and more frustrating experience. All semblance of strategy goes out the window when you have an enemy that simply makes a beeline towards you, without you having any appreciable recourse to avoid it. This is the issue with E.T.'s enemies. What could have been an interesting cat-and-mouse kind of mechanic involving you navigating a screen full of pits and causing enemies to either have to navigate around them themselves, or maybe even fall into the pits as a trap, devolved into a frustrating series of movements that punished the player unnecessarily while providing no real benefit for successfully avoiding an enemy. Sure, you might maintain your hold on the radio parts you so desperately need, but that's only a momentary thing, as you'll almost certainly encounter an enemy on the next screen that will chase you down. 
There were even times when an enemy literally spawned on top of me, meaning avoidance was 100% impossible. You simply lose your radio part and move on with your day. This, in particular, was frustrating. Bottom line, the game's unique design decisions, while conceptually sound, just are not executed well enough to be considered anything other than frustrating, and in some cases, unfair. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? I will say, I did not despise the experience of playing E.T., and if anyone actually takes the time to learn how to play the game enough to beat it, you'll see that there is actually something here that could have been a worthwhile experience. Hidden between the pits and FBI agents and random pieces of Reese's candy lies a game that could have, dare I say it, been good. But that's not the game we got. Now I want to be clear. E.T. is not a great game, but it's also not irredeemably awful. And I truly think that its infamy is largely driven by internet bandwagon mentality. That's not to say anyone who critiques the game is wrong, because heck, I just did a bunch of critiquing myself, but is it the worst game of all time, as many people popularly claim? No, I truly don't believe it is. I should also mention that my perspective is based on playing the game at what is effectively the hardest difficulty, and you do have the ability to modify the game to either remove the scientist or remove both the scientist and FBI agent from your particular playthrough. That last option turns the game into something like a walking simulator, because there's effectively no challenge at all, so I don't recommend you play it that way unless you really just want to walk around a green world to see what all the fuss or complaining is about. Otherwise, I recommend you play with all enemies enabled, which while frustrating at many points, still represents the best way to play the game. It ended up taking me a couple of hours to beat the game, so for anyone who does want to set aside some time to truly experience what E.T. is all about, you shouldn't have to give up more than a lazy afternoon to get your fill. It's probably still not the best way to spend your time, but it also isn't something that you'll 100% regret. No, I'd say you'll probably only be feeling around 80% regret or so. So, what is our overall verdict on E.T.? I don't think it's going to surprise anyone that E.T. for the Atari 2600 is very clearly a footnote based on every conceivable definition of the category, with more faults than positive qualities and a design that is likely much too cumbersome for many modern gamers and even retro gamers' expectations. From my perspective, though, this could have been something much, much more, and in many ways, I'm not upset that I played the game but I am surely disappointed that it wasn't more than what it ended up being. That disappointment mostly stems from the fact that I truly believe the game had promise, and if just a few of the design elements and mechanics were changed, I think we'd all be talking about E.T. in a very different light. Unfortunately, that's simply the dreamer in me talking, and if I look at the E.T. we all did in fact receive, I cannot deny that it remains, undeniably, a footnote in gaming history. That was our episode on E.T. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have an X account with the handle at classicgamingt, and I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. I do highly encourage you all to join. We also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. So if you're looking for even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be our first Shareware Showdown episode, which is going to feature Jill of the Jungle versus Duke Nukem in a one-on-one death match to the death in a cage and maybe ladders. I don't know, but it's going to be a showdown between the two. We're going to determine which one is better, which one 
wears the shareware crown, at least as part of this first shareware showdown. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of either of those games. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, and if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts, it's not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to gather the feedback necessary to make sure I can make this the best possible podcast I can. The only way to do that is to get feedback from all of you to make sure that we're hitting the mark. We get new listeners every single day, which is awesome. I want to make sure I can continue to deliver the best possible podcast I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on our very first Shareware Showdown. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>